0: Good morning. How's everyone doing today? It's the last month of 2021. I can't believe December is finally here. We are uh, getting ever closer to the end of a particularly interesting and challenging year, I, I would say. I'm very excited for the year to come, 2022. I think it'll be a fantastic year for new life. Um, we began our Advent sermon series last week Christmas together, as uh, Christine mentioned, and uh, we are looking with anticipation, together with the different people of the Bible uh, that we read about, towards the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and you'll probably hear and uh, see reminders of Christmas kind of everywhere you go. Uh, You'll hear uh, that horrid song, you know, in shopping uh, centers everywhere, and we look forward to his return. Today, we're looking at uh, disunity in Babylon and unity in Christ. But before we get to that, how about I pray for us? Father God, uh, it's upon your word that we stand. Uh, It's your word that gives us a foundation for life. And it's your word that breathes new life into us, God. You remind us, Lord, uh, throughout this season about your son, Jesus, who came and died and resurrected again, that we might have life. Sometimes even throughout this season, uh, we might be unable to see who you are. We might become distracted by the things of this earth, God. And for these things, we repent and we turn to you, God, asking for you to turn our full, undivided attention back to you once again. You're the good shepherd, you're the one who goes out for your lost sheep, and among these, we count ourselves as well, God. But Lord, uh, we as a church, we long to mature, we long to hear from you in amazing and deeper ways, God. Uh, We long to be addressed by you as maturing adults, but at the same time, we want to be accepted by you as disobedient children uh, when we go astray. Would you accept us into your arms once again as we commit ourselves to you? Help us, Lord, to stand upon the rock of your word and help us, Lord, to receive your spirit that we might know you and that we might receive new life in you. Would you be with us throughout this service? Guide us through your word. Help us, Lord, to love you and love one another, to find true unity in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, recently, um, we had a few issues with our phone plans. Um, we had a few issues. We share in a bit of a family phone plan with the rest of my family. And for about a month, um, only one of our phones actually had the internet. And for me, uh, when I'm away from you know, Wi-Fi, my phone would just struggle. You know, it would just struggle with internet speeds wherever I went. It got me thinking about times before uh, the internet was a thing. Okay, I don't know if any of you guys were born after the fact, and so the internet's just always been a thing for you guys, but I remember um, before all of this, and before the internet became just just everywhere. Before it was commercialized, the internet, if you didn't know, it began as a tool for sharing academic and military networks. This is how it kind of started. It was only after commercialization that it began to seep into every area of our lives. It became this ubiquitous thing. Uh, communication began to be redefined by the Internet in a huge way, okay? sometimes even superseding whatever it came before it. So think about things like telephone communication. You know, probably none of your families are actually using calling cards anymore to call Korea or call overseas. I remember when that was a huge thing, and we'd have to go and buy these $50 calling cards that just ran out so quickly as well. Uh, now everyone just does it over the Internet. Music. You know, it was unheard of to listen to so much music. We were just overwhelmed. You can listen to you know, some guy in his garage in Portland, Oregon, just banging away on his little keys or whatever it is. Television, news, all of these things have become superseded and uh, changed by the internet. We've come to a place where the internet has grown to the point that it's been declared a basic human right by the United Nations. So it's actually a human right You can tell that to your internet service provider if they're struggling to provide you with something. As of 2019, if you were to download everything that search engines could actually get their hands on, it would take you about 11 trillion years, which is, you know, in 11 trillion years, that's well, how old my son will be, 11 trillion years old. Uh, There's literally more information available online than there are people to actually utilize all of this information. So we can have all the people in the world Try to use all the information and we'll never get there. It's just ever expanding. There's always constantly people online adding more information moment by moment, day by day, and it's just constantly growing. So as you can imagine, as you've perhaps experienced through your utilization of the internet as well, it's just a really great tool for unity, right? Like, if you spend time in social media and comment sections, you know it's a great tool for unity say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, as we connect with people around the world and come to understand their perspectives on things. You know, you get to hear what someone from Uganda thinks about politics in the U.S. And you get to hear, oh man, they have a very different perspective from me. You can find out what culture they're from, find out a little bit more about them, discuss with people in civil, loving, and very gracious ways that I know that we do. Um, at its worst... The internet is—it's a cesspool. It's just terrible. It is a tool ripe for misuse. You know, if you spend any time on the internet, you know that it's not always used in the best ways. The legal activities that are hosted—you know—whether black markets for the trade of drugs or weapons or human trafficking—you know, this is a huge issue. Services that are aimed at fueling addiction, remember we talked about the consumption of media, pornography, internet, all of these things for the sake of profit, companies are pushing these things to you more and more, knowing that they can get you hooked. And they know if they get you hooked by a certain age, which is not the age that we should expect, they know they have you for life. And of course, uh, this is what we're thinking about today, the stirring up of people's emotions against those different from them, with a view to inciting civil disobedience, even violence, in a bid to destabilize other nations around the world or ideologies and put forward their own, all under the guise of uniting. You know, you, you read about these terrifying things that are in existence today, about troll farms, about things that actually are trying to destabilize people under the guise of uniting people. Now unfortunately, alongside the internet, there are many historical examples that run along the same lines. And it shows that a humanistic approach to unity will inevitably result in violence, oppression, and assimilation. These are kind of the three things that come along with a humanistic approach to unity because As every good endeavor, um, unfortunately, they go along the same lines. We see this strongly in the first of our passages today, so read along with me Genesis 11. Um, I'll read up to verse four. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, Let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So at this time, the Bible is describing to us when the world had a, the same language and vocabulary. Can you just imagine that? You go anywhere in the world and you can speak the language. A group of people thought to create their own vision of unity. It's a unity that glorified their own city above all. With a tower with its top in the sky, and actually that word translated as top for us in our English Bibles. In the Hebrew, it's rosh, okay, you can say rosh. Uh, look at someone next to you and tell them you have a beautiful rosh, go ahead and do that. Yeah. If you've kind of guessed what rosh means, rosh is the Hebrew word for head, okay, so hopefully you did say beautiful, you didn't say you know, big or small or something odd. These people want to build a tower with its head in the Shemayim, or the heavens, where God dwells. Okay, so the people want to build a tower with its head in the heavens where they know that God dwells, and this tower will be in a city that they will build together. Now, when you read this for the first time, what is wrong with what they're doing? Isn't unity a good thing? Isn't this a beautiful thing? People coming together, speaking the same language, and saying, hey, let's be united. Let's do this together, but the last time, if you read through the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the last time that we heard mention of a city being built in Genesis was in chapter four, when Cain built a city, going against God's directive to accept his punishment to become a wanderer over the earth after murdering his brother. Remember, God said to him, you will be a wanderer for the rest of his life, so Cain, what did he do? He built a city and dwelt there. So there's a bit of an ominous note. Is this what's happening here in Babylon also in defiance of God? Because that's the thing that immediately comes to mind when we read this. This is humanity's attempt to make a name for themselves rather than to glorify God's name. So Cain's prior uh, defiance set the scene for us perfectly. It becomes kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's to come since the people of Babylon are also acting in defiance of God. So the author paints the picture for us by describing the actual, by not describing, I should say, the actual building of the city and the tower. Do you notice this? They talk about building the city and the tower, but we never actually see the action of building. Why? Because this is similar to God. God does this in the opening chapters of Genesis, creating through simply speaking. We see the absolute power of God in this, and here, The people of Babylon are trying to mirror and mimic God's actions to show their power as well. The people think themselves to be like God without actually listening to Him. Now, the people here in Babylon, they look to idolize themselves to put everyone under their own culture and under the rule of their own city through conformity. It's an idolatry of their own culture as they attempt to bring a false sense of unity through assimilation making everything one under themselves. There's no, you know, let's gather together and we'll celebrate our differences, it's let's gather together, everyone will be under the rule of our city. Now besides the internet example, we've seen other similar things to this Babylonian tower in modern times. Okay, it reached with me throughout history and you can see it in examples of colonialism or the discovery doctrine in Christian history. Okay, this is a very uncomfortable topic for a lot of Christians to talk about because the name of God was used as a cover to take over lands from indigenous people and assimilate people in incredibly atrocious ways. We live in a land such as this as well. And you see it in the recent political landscape as well as people rally under the banner of a particular political party or ideology. You know, we're going through some elections now, right? Speaking of unity, and nationalistic identity. I'm sure some of you guys have received text messages from some of these united people. Humanity's attempts at unity are not pretty. It will never be pretty. Violence and assimilation are just often weapons that are used under the banner of peace. You know, you can look up quotes about war and peace and you'll always find people saying, in order to achieve peace, you need to make a little bit of war and they'll dress it up with whatever euphemisms possible to say we need to make war in order to actually have peace. But unity in God brings true unity through diversity rather than assimilation. Think about it, is it really unity if you have everyone looking and sounding and acting the same, carrying on with the exact same culture? If everyone is exactly the same, is that unity? No, it's not. That's not unity, that's homogenous, that's actually just conformity rather than unity. True unity is diversity coming together and not dividing, but celebrating differences together. In God, there's togetherness, there's love, there's welcoming and blessing. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, love. This should be the catch cry of all Christians everywhere we should be able to come together and celebrate differences in things that are non-essential and in the essential things of God be able to unite under one banner. Now whereas humanity will look to assimilate and conquer and unite, unite under this banner, God's prerogative throughout the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, is to bring blessings upon the nations through a people that he's chosen. He says this quite often throughout the Old Testament. Just read Genesis. Just read the first half of Genesis even, and you'll see the way that God makes this his prerogative. Before we get there, though, let's look at how he handles this Babylonian problem. Verses 5 to 7. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, come. Let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So even as the people of the land think to build their tower with the head in the heavens, God is forced to come down to look at the city and this tower. Can you imagine this? Like There's just utter futility in human endeavor in prideful trying to actually reach God. You know, have you ever heard that that Quote, your arms are too short to box with God. You see this right here. No matter how much they build, God will always have to come down in order to look at what humans have achieved. In fact, it says it twice there. But God does acknowledge that what's happening here is not good. If humans are allowed to continue down this path of evil and they work together at it, then they'll actually become too powerful for their own good. And nothing will be able to hold back their evil works. They're heading in the same direction as Adam and Eve after the fall in chapter three when God cut them off from the tree of life so that they wouldn't take of it and eat and live eternally in separation from him. So this is God's protection of humanity in keeping us from, become, from becoming arrogantly comfortable in our sin and in our vaulting ambition towards sin. He confuses the language of the people to make sure that there's a way back to him, rather than allowing themselves to become completely self-reliant on their sinful works. Can you imagine if they were able to achieve this great tower? They would always be able to look at it as a monument to their own greatness, and they would constantly think, see, we did not need God at all. Now when we look into God's actions here, we can see the heart of love that's willing even to endure the misunderstanding that will come his way from doing such a thing. You know, I'm sure, Like when I read this the first few times, I thought, why is God acting this way? It seems so petty. You know, why would he go down there and just mess them up? They're not doing anything wrong. But he endures this misunderstanding because he knows that the alternative is this great potential for human evil just as before the flood a few chapters ago. God saw that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And so he knows that he must take action to hold us back. Now you guys know I'm a bit of a, you know, a poetry nerd, linguistics are things that I really enjoy. Uh, there's great wordplay here that suggests all this as well. It kind of comes across in the English, you know, Babel, you know, Babylon, it kind of comes across, okay? But in the Hebrew, There's wordplay between the word for Babylon in Hebrew, Babel, as I mentioned, and "confuse," which is Balal, okay, Babel and Balal, and then people say, let's make bricks, nobena in Hebrew, and God says, let us confuse, which is nabela, all the while Hebrew speakers would be reading through this and recognizing, hang on a second, our word for folly or foolishness is all throughout this as well, nabela. Everything sounds kind of similar and it's kind of interchangeable because this entire story is written in such a way to bring human folly into the background of your mind, looming over everything that you hear and read, everything that the people are doing here. It just strikes of human foolishness, the foolishness of the prideful who would assume that they can make plans against God's own plans for them. But the good news is, the story doesn't leave the people stranded in their misery either. It emphasizes God's protective love over humanity in making sure that they don't just build to their deaths. Can you just imagine if they just keep building and God just lets them? What humanity meant for evil, God turned to good. So God keeps his promise. He had plans, if you remember, in the very, very beginning of Genesis for humans to go, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth like he had said to Adam and Eve, and he said it again to Noah after the flood. Read with me verses eight to nine. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Look at the way God's actions here, of God scattering them throughout the earth, frames this passage. Says it there in the very beginning, says it there at the very end. It's a consequence of the people's actions, but it's not only a consequence. It's also keeping with the command that he gave to his people previously. You're not gonna carry it out. I'll carry it out for you. This is his graciousness at work. Have you ever thought about why it's so important to God that this happens? Why is this such a big thing? Why does he want us to go forth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Couldn't he have just done it with Adam and Eve and just had a happy little couple? in the garden forever. But no, people are sent to be fruitful and multiply. It's not to prepare for you know, this year and social distancing, but God desires to bless all of humanity in his diversity through his people who know him. He wants for all people to come to know him. This is the kind of God he is in his graciousness. He wants to reach people through us. He wants to actually include us in his plans. He calls for his people to not just be blessed This is not the end goal of our lives, to be blessed, but to bless others as well and tells them that he will bless those that they bless and he will curse those that they curse. This goes from the fathers of all the nations. We can read through the rest of Genesis and see this as we will see in coming weeks to specific families all the way down to one person throughout history. The true rosh. Whereas Babylon sought to funnel everything under its one human culture, assimilating all and taking life so that its own name could be glorified, Jesus is the Son of God come to this earth in human flesh to take on all of the sins of all humanity and to take death upon himself that we might be given life and in this we might receive glory in the life to come. He doesn't hog all with glory for himself, but instead he gives an equal share to us who don't deserve it. In Christ, we find true unity, and we find the furthest conclusion of this in another city, which Christine read to us a little while ago. In Revelation 21, verses 22 to 26, if you want to turn there or if you want to look on screen, I did not see a temple in it or this city, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. In the new Jerusalem, we see the fulfillment of everything that we've just talked about, everything that the humans were trying to achieve in Babylon. Now, this should be a familiar passage to you if you've been with New Life for a little while throughout this year. Um, As the nations walk by the city's light, provided by the glory of God and the, the Lamb, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. Have you ever wondered why there's a city, the New Jerusalem, and then there's still nations across the earth? Why don't they all just come and live in the New Jerusalem? Because it's a celebration of the, of the diversity, it's not an assimilation like what Babylon is trying to do here. This is true unity and its diversity as the nations are seen coming together in their diversity to actually worship the Lord. Where Babylon sought to place the roche of its tower in the skies in order to elevate itself, Christ is a true roche, the true head, for he's the head of the church. And we already see this and we already experience this without a building that stretches to the heavens. We have no need for such a tower because we are part of the church together. The body that we're a part of as Christians, remember the sermon last week, the true head is Christ. Now we read the account of the tower in Babylon during Advent this year, and I know this is a bit of a strange passage to read during Advent as we look forward to Christmas because you can see the flood that came wasn't the medicine for human sin and arrogance. It didn't solve these issues. In fact, it was still very alive and well here in Babylon, as you can see. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see the way Babylon continues to fall, coming to become the icon of foolishness and evil. We see this all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. While here, the tower is built with the hope of reaching heaven. By the end of the Bible, the other bookend of the Bible, as Christine put it, Babylon is seen as a symbol. For humanity's sins piled up to the heavens. Whereas the people sought to build a physical tower that stretched all the way to the heavens, the people actually ended up building a spiritual tower with sins piled all the way up to the heavens, as Revelation 18 tells us. Now seeing all of this, this is where we should be at. The people of the Bible looked forward in hopes of a Messiah yet to come. They weren't sure about this Messiah, they just knew what God had promised and God had kept his promises before. And here we go, today we look back to this Messiah. In Jesus, we find this fulfillment and we'll celebrate this on Christmas Day. But for us today, we look forward to his return, when Babylon will fall, when the new Jerusalem will bring true unity and blessings upon this world. This is what we look forward to and this is what we can experience here in the church as we build towards the true head over us Christ. There's no application point here. I just pray that we will all pray together and we'll be able to see this vision fulfilled. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Father, as we read about the tower in Babylon, as we read about the the people's vaulting ambitions, as we read about their defiance towards your plans, and as we read about their prideful arrogance, let us not look to these things with our noses turned up as though we're not leaning that way as well. In the consumerism of the holiday season, in the way that we look to bring comfort upon ourselves, in the way that we turn our attention away from you, towards our own endeavors. Would you admonish us? Would you meet us with soft discipline in a gentle way? Lead us back to you, God, and help us, Lord, to turn to you and recognize your graciousness in the way that you confuse our plans and make your plans go forth. Lord, we wanna look upon not the tower of our own building, To look upon what you're building here in the body of Christ, we look to your son Jesus, the true head of the church, the one that we look to, the one that disperses glory to all of us in the life to come. We don't need to see glory for ourselves here on this earth because we will receive it in greater measure than we can ever imagine in that life to come, and that's what we look forward to when the new Jerusalem descends from the heavens when we unite together and celebrate the the, the diversity of our people, when we can look to you and recognize, Lord, that you have a greater plan for us. Would you guide us, help us, Lord, to look to your plans first, to really cling to you and to see that you have what's best in mind for us. Help us to be a prayerful people, to be a people that don't turn to our own ambitions, but turn to you first say that we love you, and we do love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.